text this morning and we continue our time in the book of Hebrews here. This morning, um, we will deal with the first part of two parts here in summarizing our time in chapter 11. We will be down there at verses 29 through um, 38, essentially, and then we'll deal with 39 next week. There are some particular points that demand our attention there. To summarize, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. We have spent several weeks in chapter 11 hearing about the many witnesses who have proven out the faithfulness of God. They have proven it out. We could call to stand as witness saints upon saints upon saints upon saints who have experienced the covenant faithfulness of God. As he says, the evidence of God's faithfulness to his people is overwhelming. That's why there in verse 32, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of, and then he begins to tell of. You can tell, again, the body was a sermon. Rabbit trails. That's what we do. But his are good ones. What more can I say? The, the, the evidence is overwhelming. All throughout redemptive history, that God is covenantly faithful to his people. Each and every individual testimony. So we take the corporate whole, God's people and his faithfulness to them. And then that whole is comprised of individual walks of faith. And as we look at each and every individual, we see that there is a common denominator beginning in chapter 11, 1 and 2. And that is that although the blessings promised, pick your person, pick what more shall I say, and pick your individual. As you read the pages of Holy Scripture in the Old Covenant, pick your individual and consider that although the blessings promised were not yet fully revealed, were not made manifest concretely so, the man or woman of faith, that is the individual of faith, was utterly convinced of their reality. That's the testimony of the whole, and that's the testimony of the individual. That is the mark of the people of God as we live, walk by faith. It might not be tangibly here, concretely so, measurable according to my style or needs of instruments of measuring, but I am utterly convinced in its reality. Some would say immediately that, well, then there you have it. You have these crazy crazy, uh, religious people. That it's easy to just say, I believe in this with no evidence. That's naivety. That's ridiculous. And yet, to each one of us at some point, there is, well, not at some point, but regular points, are challenges to our own hearts to our own lives as well, as we walk by that faith, it certainly does wane. It is challenged. It is beset by various weaknesses. Sometimes, perhaps, we think ourselves quite naive to embrace all of this and to believe it, feeling overwhelmed by what we wish we could just see, touch, handle, taste, sense about its realities. 
So the point is this, this does prove this sense of being utterly convinced of the unseen. And by utterly convinced, that is your life takes shape based upon those unseen realities. Your life is shaped by them. You're actually not like assenting to them, but as you assent, you then trust and your life is shaped by them being real. How does that happen? How did it happen as we catalog all the way from Cain and Abel in Genesis and we catalog redemptive history all the way to where at the end of chapter 11 he talks about us, all the way from here to there, everybody in between. How is that possible to be convinced? Well, I would suggest as we have summarized and worked through chapter 11, what we discover is that this proves to be possible for each one of us only when it was possible for the testimony of Abel, it'll be possible for the testimony of each one of us only when faith is set upon its proper object. That's the issue. Only when faith is set upon its proper object. Never mind the children. We're not torturing anyone. They would have you believe otherwise. That is, if the object, and and so go with me now. If the object of faith, its termination point, object of faith is a particular outcome only to be secured. So my object in which I am banking on, I'm taking this vessel of faith and I'm placing it into this, which is an outcome, an end game for me. And so I'm taking faith and I'm placing it in this event or this outcome or this experience. That's where I am placing my faith. It is set on that as an object, whatever that outcome is, whatever that particular is for you, whatever that would be for an individual. My, my faith, it, this vessel is banking on that outcome. Only then that outcome to be secured as I consider it. I want this outcome. I'm banking on it. And it's only going to happen if. It is secured by a series of hopeful events. I need a lot of dominoes to line up. And they need to fall just ever so correctly to make this happen. That, that, that's where I'm, this vessel of faith, I am placing it in this outcome. To be secured by the dominoes failing or falling ever so slightly right in the right, right, in the right spot. Well wishes from others, the second degree that I need. I need encouragement along the pathway. If I get just the right word at just the right time, just the right affirmation by another individual who I long to have that affirmation from, so I need the dominoes, I need the right affirmation, not every day, but a right date. Then finally, sprinkle it with a dash of luck. If the object of faith is a particular outcome, only to be secured secured by a series of hopeful events, well wishes, and sprinkled with a dash of luck, then faith, this vessel, faith, will fail. 
for it will fail. It is set to fail, for it is not true faith. Now I've just shifted the burden. Okay, so we're talking about faith, and now you just added true to faith. What's the distinction between faith and true faith? Is the deciding factor me? Because I don't want false faith, I want true faith. What do I mean by true faith? For faith set upon a particular outcome will fail. It will. It will let you down. It will have its crisis moment, and the meltdown will follow. What then is true faith? As we consider chapter 11 and the testimony that we have learned by the many witnesses to true faith, it is that faith which is set upon its proper object. We have a, a, a failure of faith. Why? Because faith was not set out upon its proper object. True faith is that faith which is set upon its proper object Who is Jesus Christ the Lord? Therein is the proper object, or should I say, in whom is the proper object of faith. This vessel of faith is entrusted to the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. This is true Faith and true faith, that which sees Jesus as its object, his person, his life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, his return. Faith which sees and banks on him as the sole object is a faith that will not fail, but a faith that will endure. No matter, no matter, no matter the heat of the day. The trial, the tribulation, the meltdown, the discouragement, the dark cloud of depression, the anxiety of life with all of its complexities, its relationships, its finances, its only so many hours in a certain day. It's not without those trials but it will endure through those trials. Why? Because of its object. He who is Christ's Lord. So in faith you recognize, he's holding on to me. Thus I will endure. For it endures not by one's own virtue. And that's what we learn in the hall of witnesses. We're not modeling them as like, they did this right, they did that right, they did this right, they did that right. And then they have that real smart calculation at that point. It was a real turning point in the narrative. They re- I mean, good thing he, he, he did that. I ought to think, okay, what are the turning points in my... Okay, what we're looking at is they witness to his faithfulness to them. So this hall of witnesses points to the trustworthiness of God to all the people of God. So it is not, a faith that endures is not by one's own virtue, but a faith that endures is because of another's promise. 
faithful is Him who will also do all that He has promised. So I conclude by way of introduction. We haven't even introduced what we're going to do this morning yet. By way of introduction, what would we conclude then as we make our transition? And it is what we can so boldly say about each and every one of us whose faith looks solely to Jesus Christ. That true faith. This is each one of you who are looking to Christ this hour. True faith. Though it be beset by weakness of every kind. Will not fail. Because it clings to to a never-failing Lord. He is holding on to you. Though your cling and your grip feels like it is slipping and sliding, it clings to a strong and enduring Lord. This morning then, as we conclude that sense of what each witness is contributing to the overall provenness of God's faithfulness, that faith's proper object is Christ and Christ alone. I want to look just at one thing as we saw in the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. It is the reward of faith. The reward of true faith. And we have three examples, historical events here, that give us opportunity in verses 29 through 31 to consider here in this short little section the reward of true faith. Again, I'm not saying true in the sense of better versus worse. I'm saying true as that which has Christ Jesus as its object. You look beyond you. You look beyond circumstance. You look nowhere else but to Christ Jesus alone and His his righteousness. That's true, abiding, never-failing faith. Not because of you, but because of Him. True faith's reward. So the reward of faith being expressed here in three historical events here in the life of Israel as it transitions, if you kind of notice that a little bit through chapter 11, it's moving redemptive historically. So in other words, it's beginning way back here with Cain and Abel and it's tracking through the history of Israel. And now we looked at Moses last week, a little bit more here in the event of the Red Sea, but then it also transitions into Joshua and the taking of the land for Israel in that point of its history. So it's kind of moving progressively forward as the apostles to the Hebrews preaching this sermon is tracking redemptively historically God has in all eras been who he always will be faithful and then we get to the very end of the chapter and he will prove that to be yet again to us faithful 
So these three historical events, I just want to take a few moments here to look at as we see yet again the reward then of true faith. That which looks to Christ is never disappointed. The first of the three historical events we want to walk through just briefly this morning is verse 29 there. If you look with me in the text, it is the crossing of the Red Sea event, that which each of us are probably rather familiar with, at least we have heard of or are Uh, have read or spent time seeing perhaps on TV at some point in a program of some sort. Verse 29, it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The first piece there, the background text, if you wish to jot it down, the background text here where they are up against the sea, and they are, they are escaping or fleeing Egypt, and the backdrop to them is the sea, and there's a moment of crisis, a point of failure of faith. Here's this sea, here's our enemy. It's going to occur. And the apostle here instructs us as we look back on Exodus 14, we won't for time purposes this morning, but then at this point, point the apostle drives our attention to the crossing at the sea at that moment where moses declares you stand still for god fights for you a point of crisis god fights for you all you have to do is stand still and the sea we know the story right the sea Parts. And as he reports here, by faith, they walked through the sea as if on dry land. The question is yet to us this morning, what does that mean? By faith, they crossed. Because here you are, you're crossing physically. You're crossing. So you're like, so by physical strength, they crossed the sea. It would work. That makes sense. You're like, yeah, right. They had to walk across as if on dry land. But he's driving us to the witness of God's work by faith. They crossed by faith. The question is, what does it mean that by faith they crossed? And as we've been looking after testimony, after testimony, after witness, after witness, it is still the same. If we were to go back to that episode there in Exodus 14, we will see that this is how they crossed by faith. They heard, they were persuaded by, and they trusted in the word of God. That is how they did it by faith. They heard the word. Moses declaring to them, this is what God will do. They heard it. They were persuaded by it. That's true. And they trusted in it. That is what it means. They, by faith, crossed the Red Sea. Right now, this is you hearing the word of the Lord. It's going out, and there is this faith-filled response. I'm hearing it. I'm being persuaded to its truth claims, and I am trusting in its integrity. then you're worshiping, listening by faith. And so Israel, by faith, crossed the sea as if on dry land. They heard, they were so persuaded, and they did trust in God to do what he said 
He will fight for you. What is faith's reward in this very first episode? I think each of us know what it was. In a simple word, it was deliverance. God delivered His people. He said He would deliver. They trusted Him to deliver. And He delivered. By faith they crossed. What does it mean in this deliverance? That is that the deliverance, if we were to summarize the event in terms of deliverance as the reward for true faith, that which hears, is persuaded, and trusts in God that what He says so, He also will perform. The deliverance in that moment that was promised was the deliverance in that very moment that was provided. Why? How so? Because God is trustworthy and faithful. That is, faith which is set upon its proper object will receive its reward. What He has promised you, believer, hidden in Christ, what He has promised, He so will perform. We sang about it. We confessed it. Are we so moved, persuaded by, and are we trusting in that which we did confess and sing over? And what He promises, He provides. And I'm utterly convinced of it. Therefore, my life takes shape in light of it. The next two historical events that we just briefly will look at and concern ourselves with and this issue of the driving force by faith that people crossed is the second there that speaks of the same essence of faith, its object and its fruit, its reward, and that is there the Jericho episode or the battle for Jericho which perhaps we are also, once again, now we're transitioning out of Moses' leadership and we're watching them cross the Red Sea and now they're going into taking the land, that which has been promised through Abraham to Israel. And in verse uh, 30, we're watching that transition now as they go in and they battle in the book of Joshua there, taking the promised land. And yet, God who saw them through the crisis of the sea is the God who will prepare the way for them in the land. Verse 30, the battle for Jericho and the episode and reward of faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The background text here is Joshua 6.1, where we see Joshua get the battle plan together. And again, it is God who fights for you. And we notice the same thing that he's instructing us here in verse 30. By faith, the walls fell down. So what is the paradigm here? How did the walls fall down? By faith, exactly. How so? What would, how did faith cause this? It is the same comment. And you say, I know. And you've been saying it for weeks as you admitted at the very beginning of this. We've been saying this for several weeks now. It is a great reminder that we know what faith actually is and press beyond jargon 
What does it mean to walk by faith? What does it mean that the walls fell down by means of faith? What does it mean for me right now to live by faith? It is that Israel, through Joshua, heard, were persuaded by, and trusted in the word of God. There was instructions about a battle plan. This is how God fights for you. I am hearing that battle plan and I am acting on it because I have heard the word of the Lord regarding what he will do for us in the battle. I heard, I'm not persuaded by, I'm not going to circle the place seven times, once each day and then seven on the seventh day. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not so. Then that would be a failure of by faith seeing the wall fall down. But I've heard that this is how he will fight for us. And I am so persuaded that what he says, so also will he perform. Thus, I will obey. And the comment on that situation, by faith, the walls fell down. The reward, true faith's reward. Again, consider the object. The object for Israel to act by faith against Jericho. Is that the object of their faith was God. That he was able. Overlooking circumstance. Though there indeed was a very difficult circumstance to feel paralyzed by. They believed that God was able to do what he had said. The reward given in this historical instance as we look at the first one through the Red Sea, we would say, again, it's quite obvious there is an element of deliverance that is the reward for faith, that which looks to God alone as its object. He so also proves himself to be trustworthy as you look, faithful to your needs as he has promised. And the victory here for the battle of Jericho, I would suggest, is that of victory. That is the reward. That the victory promised was the victory provided. Why? How so, we ask? Because God is trustworthy. He promises, so also will he perform. The question is, is our heart persuaded to that truth? Because, we, 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 again, we can't just say, okay, so if faith was a sense of knowledge, persuasion, and trust, again, how we then define them and how they're working, but if we were to kind of look at faith holistically and say, okay, that we, 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 we tend to pull out assent or persuasion, and we think, okay, that's about data points. And if we could just, like, have the right theology and the right content in the brain, then we're going to walk by that content. But it isn't the case. Many of us would know, or perhaps we are or have been, many who would be able to get an A on a theology of exam of some sort. You're looking doubtful as I look out. 
you know what I'm saying. Sunday school Charlie, he has it, the answer, always. But there's an issue there. That's not the singular component of walking by faith is having data. There is data that has to go in and that by grace is transformed into the heart. There's not a great, a total breakage of mind and heart, but they are integrated. That it must go into the mind and into the heart. That light in the mind does equal heat in the heart. A brief comment on the history of the Old Testament. Sometimes we would look at these, uh, the, the Battle of Jericho is an interesting one. And if you look in church history, the way it's been preached, some real interesting sermons on that, about how Jericho has served as a symbol or a sign of ungodliness and, and, and sin, or the city of man versus the city of God, and how Israel interacts and how God's people fight sin, and so on and so forth. But I don't think that it is a total stretch In fact, I am persuaded that it is a great component of understanding the historical events of God's people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, as shadows that belong to a reality and correspond to the New Testament as those historical events do actually serve us, the people of God, to look back and see. There is a near referent to Israel. There's a concrete city with a wall. That's very real. I could walk out and touch the wall. It's there. It's not just a spiritual idea. It's there. Yet, it certainly does speak in that covenant context to a further referent, which is the victory that God will perform through Jesus Christ for his people. He will prove to be utterly faithful against your foes. And it's not a stretch to say they had physical ones and we have spiritual ones. That can't speak to this. It does speak to that. The need for deliverance. He will prove to be faithful. Spiritually, he will nourish you and provide a way of escape. Spiritually, he will do wondrous deeds by faith bringing to the people of God through Christ victory. He proves in all categories to be trustworthy. The final historical event that we will consider just this morning is the event of Rahab, and that is the deliverance of Rahab. So the event of the Red Sea, the event of Jericho, and the battle there, and finally the third event this morning for us to consider regarding the proving out of God's faithfulness to his people is this event of Rahab's deliverance. Verse 31 there, you see that by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Regarding the inclusion of Rahab here, there are three particulars I want to conclude our time with. I won't elaborate on them too far and too wide, but I would like to highlight three particulars here with Rahab that witness to the grace of God in the gifting of faith. The grace of God in the gifting of faith. 
We won't go back and look at Joshua's account there of the events surrounding Rahab and the fall of Jericho and the deliverance of her and her household. But I would like to highlight three particulars here from this text regarding the witness to the grace of God and the gifting of faith. The grace of God and the gifting of faith. There are three. One, number one. This is important for each of us this morning to consider that the grace of God is not determined by gender. Grace is not determined by gender. In Galatians 3.28, I'll conclude with that text in a moment this morning, but just to highlight out of Galatians 3.28, Paul makes very clear that in the realm of faith, that is in the room this morning, the people of God hidden in Christ, the people of God this morning in this room, the realm of faith, there is no distinction between male and female. There are natural ones, and I'm not here to politicize a war on women or not, as it's not even within my scope. The point is there are natural distinctions between men and women. Praise the Lord. Great. It's necessary. They're functional. They're part of humanity. Paul speaking here in the realm of faith. Men are not more robust in faith because they're men. And there's women who shrink back because, you know, women they lack faith when we look within the realm of faith as the consideration here also moves by faith Rahab the prostitute she acted what we see of the grace of God in the gifting of faith is that grace is not determined by gender number two important to note here about the inclusion of Rahab in this witness to God's faithfulness in faith. Number two, grace is not limited by type or volume of one's sin. I trust that is important to each and every one of us. Again, as it was prayed this morning by Brother Dan as he opened up, as he asked the Lord, if there is one here among us who does not know you, whose proper object of their faith is not Christ and Christ alone, and reveal that to them, that they might repent and believe. And they say, well, I can't because I, well, you know, my merit, I, look again at the text. To my point, grace is not limited by type or volume of one's sin. How do we get that? How 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 did you make that fine? But where? Look at the inclusion here in verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute. That was not inserted to mar her character. Like, we all got to take this with a grain of salt. Remember, she's a prostitute. It is precisely the opposite. It highlights the grace of God is not limited by type or volume of one's sin. 
They rejoice that it's Rahab the prostitute. Thirdly, finally, grace is not limited by ethnicity or country of origin. Grace is not limited by ethnicity or country of origin. Again, noting that Rahab belonged to the city of Jericho. The ethnicity, she was not Jewish. The highlight regarding Rahab's inclusion, even just here, let alone how she plays within the genealogy of Jesus himself in Matthew 1, is that grace is not limited by ethnicity. Some will get it, some won't, based upon ethnicity or country of origin. Again, Paul makes clear in Galatians 3.28, that is not the case. I finalized my comment with this by reading Galatians 3.28. There is neither, again, the realm of faith. It's not the absence of all distinctions, physical and and, um, geographical. That's not the case. In the realm of faith, there is neither Jew nor Greek. It is not limited by ethnicity. There is neither slave nor free. Well, there were historical evidence of slave, but, but that, not in the realm of faith, whose object is Christ the Lord. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, because he's the object of your faith. You're all one, because you share in him. But I'm from, but I've done, but I have. There is no distinction. Because it's not Jesus plus merit. It's Jesus plus nothing. Therefore, there is no distinction. It's him or nothing. But I, no, full stop. Justification by faith alone. Full stop. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's. Do you see that great if-then statement here? If you are Christ's. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. The merit of another. This is... True faith's reward. The merits of another. It must be true faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a few moments to see the beauty of your gifting of grace that knows no bounds. And as sure, as trustworthy, and you are faithful.
do all that you have said to also perform it. 